looking at uh, a number of different aspects of our ordinary conditioning, how our, how our minds work in a more quote-unquote ordinary way, as a significant part of our practice that even if we've had uh, deep insights and quite a lot of transformation, elements of the ordinary mind typically are still there. Has anyone noticed? <laughs> and what I've, what I've uh, done is I've identified like uh, 10 parameters of the ordinary mind. And we've looked at four of them so far, and the uh, time is the fifth. And uh, I'll mention what, the, what those are. Um, the, the first uh, area we looked at was the kind of the ordinary nat- nature of thinking and how the thought process works. The second was the more, quote-unquote, ordinary experience of the body, how we understand, see our bodies. The third was our emotional life, our hearts, The fourth was the sense of a separate self. And the fifth is time. And in all of these explorations, I'm keeping a very simple structure. The first is we'll look at the ordinary conditioning around a given aspect of the ordinary mind. What are the typical patterns that we find? Secondly, we'll look to what seems to be the way that these uh, different parameters of our experience uh, are transformed and really manifest in a quite different way in what we might call the mind and heart and body of the Buddha or in an awakened being. You know, in other words, what does, how does the Buddha think? What's the sense of time for the Buddha? And of course, we're going to do our best to have a sense of that. Luckily, we have some writings, we have some text, and we also, I think, each of ourselves have some awakened moments. We have some moments in which we actually haven't been subject to ordinary conditioning. And so we can also make use of those. So the first area is what's the nature of the ordinary conditioning. The second area, what is the nature of the experience of the Buddha according to a particular parameter? And then thirdly, how do we go from A to B? How do we practice to develop in a given parameter? And so the uh, focus today is on the experience of time. And we started with that last week. And I want to continue with it, give a brief review of some of what we covered last time. And as I, as I also suggested a week ago, I hope that we have a good time exploring the experience of time. And uh, part of my motivation, actually, is to arouse a sense of uh, the mystery of time. We take time for granted in many ways, but I hope to, and to a little bit, or to, to some extent, um, uh, disorient us. 
lead, uh, say things that lead to a certain amount of confusion about time. I won't do that. I won't try to uh, arouse ordinary confusion, but helpful confusion. <laughs> helpful disorientation that can essentially let us, you know, that, that could be used to help us say, oh, maybe I should look at this, you know, and to move outside of the ordinary parameters. So that's my, that's my hope. So I want to I read a quotation which I really like uh, that I gave last time, which gets at some of the mystery. And this is from uh, Jorge Borges, uh, the, uh, uh, I think, I think, uh, I think Argentinian writer, if I'm right. Is that correct? Anyone correct me on that? I think Argentinian. He said, time is the substance I am made of. Time is a river which sweeps me along but I am the river. It is a tiger that devours me, but I am the tiger. It is a fire that consumes me, but I am the fire. So I think I'll, in the course of our explorations, bring out some of, some of those meaning, meanings. And so we have very ordinary habitual sense of time often, a sense of past, present, and future, you know, we're caught in the past, we think about the past, we think about the future, probably a lot of experiences of past and future just in our meditation periods. How many people had something from the past come up in your meditation? How many had something in the future draw you, right? right? So very, very common. And yet uh, often, as I suggested last time, we may actually not be so much uh, with a sense of time. And I was suggesting last time that many of our most precious experiences, what we take to be most important, uh, are experiences where there may not be much sense of time, where we actually may even, you know, maybe in retrospect say that was a timeless moment. You know, it could be with beauty, with the earth, with people we're close to, that these moments may have that aspect of timelessness. And a lot of our, what we most value has that quality. And we often um, take pictures around experiences we think may be timeless so that we can remember those timeless experiences later. <laughs> Which has its irony and has its, has its value. <laughs> you know, photography is very, very interesting yeah. in, in relation to time and the timeless, right? And I, I read somewhere that, you know, with, uh, with these, um, particularly with uh, digital photography, people are taking like a thousand times more photos than they used to. It used to be that all your valuable photos you could fit in, into a shoebox or something. That's what people, shoeboxes and photos have a long time relationship, right? But now, nowadays, you might take in a weekend more photos than most people took in a lifetime, right? Just because uh, partly for the reasons of them apparently not costing anything and so forth. It's very interesting. So there are all sorts of areas that we can look at that sense of time. 
So what's the ordinary sense of time and what's the ordinary conditioning around time? Again, I'll take some of what we explored last time, but also uh, go further. So uh, our usual sense of time is with a sense of past, present, and future. We have a sense of existing in time and we tend to attribute uh, time, uh, we tend to see time as an attribute of objective reality. We tend to think there is really kind of a river of time in which there is a past, present, and future. We experience uh, a memory. We have a sense of things from the past. We remember things from the past. We think about the past. We act in order to influence the future. Often we are very uh, impacted by the past. We may have particularly uh, very beautiful experiences or very difficult experiences that are there in the present moment. I'm thinking in terms of difficult experiences, if we have a sense of, uh, if we have a history where there's some trauma or some developmental wounding as a child, that can... um, never leave the present moment until it's dealt with. So it's always present in a certain way. And uh, I invited us uh, over the last week also to look at certain patterns of our own conditioning around time. I mentioned my own conditioning was to come from a family of planners. And that when I was first meditating, I was noticing that I was in the future a lot. I was planning. In fact, uh, when I first started meditating, I had just come from being a student in Germany for one year. And I didn't know whether I wanted to go back to Germany or stay back in the United States. And so I would, I would, my meditations would consist of in, out, in, out, for the future, Germany, for the United States, Germany, the United States. I would kind of engage in that for like half an hour. Oh, in, out, Germany, United States. So I was, uh, the planning process, such as it was, I don't know, it wasn't a very rational planning process, but it was happening. So I was really very much taken by the future. And that was something I noticed. Uh, It was kind of hard not to notice when I first started meditating. And again, I was inviting us to look at certain patterns. How much do we live in the past? How much does something that happened in the past preoccupy us? And again, I'm not saying that this is wrong or a problem. It's really just to notice what's there. And how much am I really taken by what happened in the past? How much do I uh, live in the future? How much do I go to the future? How much do I cling to memories? How much, and sometimes it's a cultural pattern, how much do I try to stop time from moving? Um, Mary Ellen, we already started the recording. Thank you. Okay. How much uh, do I try to stop time from moving? And this may occur in relation to our sense of uh, aging. 
you know, that we may, um, we may want to do certain things which make us feel young, which in our culture is sort of often the center of things. You know, uh, I don't watch much TV, but when I watch television, it seems most of the ads are devoted to young people. And I'm sure there's good market research for why that's a good idea, such as, uh, you know, you buy one sofa, you don't need another for a while, <laughs> right? But uh, uh, so there's this way that we may uh, want to stay young. You know, how many of us have, you know, dyed our hair, done certain things, noticed thoughts about staying young? And again, there, there are reasons for that when they do research on what we sometimes call ageism, they find that there's actually in people's minds more bias against older people than there is against uh, people who are African-American. And there's a lot of that, we know, right? That's not saying it has the same institutional impact. It doesn't. But when they actually simply look at the level of bias, they find more bias towards people who are older. It's interesting, right? And so there could be reasons, you know. Uh, you know, my mom dyed her hair uh, until she died, which was in her 90s. And she and she said that when your hair turns a certain way, at least in her world, uh, people uh, don't take you as seriously if you look a certain way. That's what she said, you know. And so. Um, you know, and there, there's a lot there. You know, I'm thinking sometime maybe I'll look, do a series here on the phenomenon of age, aging, youth, and so forth. But we have those experiences, and in many cultures, there's a higher valuing of the younger. In some cultures, there's a higher valuing of the older, right? And the elders are at the center of the culture, right? But it goes back a long time. I found this from... Um, uh, William Shakespeare. So this is many centuries ago. He talks about devouring time. Devouring time, blunt thou the lion's paws, make the earth devour her own sweet brood, pluck the keen teeth from the fierce tiger's jaws. That happens with time. The fierce tiger no longer has teeth, right? Burn the long-lived phoenix in her blood. Make glad and sorry seasons as thou pleasest, as thou fleetest. And do whatever thou wilt, thou wilt switch swift-footed time to the wide world and all her fading sweets. But I forbid thee one most heinous crime. O carve not with thy hours my love's fair brow. Don't do that. <laughs> O carve not with thy hours my love's fair brow, nor draw no lines there with thine antique pen. Him in thy course untainted do allow for beauty's pattern to succeeding men. Yet do thy worst, old time, despite thy wrong. My love shall in my verse ever live young. And so those tendencies aren't just in the last hundred years. (laughs) They, They go back. Right? And so what are some other patterns that we find in relation to time when we look at the what I'm calling the ordinary mind? We want to stay young. We want to 
uh, we stay in the past. You know, maybe we want to control the future. Right? A lot of our planning can be about keeping the the future safe or uh, getting what we want and so forth. Again, I'm not I'm not saying these are negative, but I'm just wanting to look at the phenomena and. One thing we can notice or we can look for is how much the nature of time is related to the sense of self. How much without a sense of time do we have no self? How much without a sense of self do we have no time? It's something to look at. In those moments when we are in the timeless, when we're just you know, being with beauty, being with the beauty of the earth, is there a sense of self? Is there a sense of time? Often not, right? And again, this is, this is just to observe what's there. That uh, a sense of time and planning and so forth uh, can give us a sense of uh, stability and security. I know what will happen later today. It's also very, very effective and efficient. It's helpful for us to coordinate time so that we all arrive here together, more or less at the same time, right? That's, that's useful. Um, so we can look at the sense of, we, we can look at the sense of uh, time being related to a sense of self. And I'm wondering, were there any other patterns that you may have noticed in our ordinary sense of time? We can use the mics here. And I'll ask maybe two or three people if you noticed something last week, to report a pattern that you found and just take about a minute to do so, not at great length. It could just be a minute or less to talk about a pattern you found in your own sense of time. Anyone want to share something you may have noticed? Yeah, please. Okay, maybe just these three that had their hands up just now. Um, I noticed a desire to control. Yeah. Control the past, you know, rewrite the past, control the future. Yeah. And that it was, well, of course, very obviously just very difficult to stay in the present. Difficult to stay in the present, wanting to rewrite the past. One can rewrite the past whether one changes the past. That's another question. <laughs> And, and then uh, noticing it difficult to stay in the present moment. How many can relate to that? Yeah, great. Please. Uh, with respect to distasteful daily chores, uh, leading up to them, there's this desire to put them off, procrastinate. Yeah. But I noticed once I'm in the midst of it and I'm focused on doing the job, the sense of time goes away and so does my distaste for the job. Yeah. So it's interesting, right? So there can be that sense of uh, negativity towards something that is to occur. But then actually when you got into it, something eased and you moved into more a sense of time. So I think we're just going to have, um, please, one more here and then one more there. And, that, and then we'll finish. Yeah, please. Phil. I've noticed a sense of time since I've retired. My wife still has another year to work. And we both now have an entirely different sense of time, <laughs> which causes a certain amount of conflict. Yeah. My sense of time has changed entirely. Yeah. Um, and hers, hers hasn't quite changed yet. Yeah. Just give it some time. 
How many, how many have noticed that? Something like, how many have noticed either in, uh, if there's retirement, a different sense of time, or maybe vacation, right? Could be also, notice the places where there's a different sense of time. Last one? I was just going to say that as I age, I seem time seems to have a different character. Yeah. And sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes time goes very, very slowly. Yeah. And other times it, as they say, slips away. Time yeah. slips away. So that's been interesting. Yeah, very interesting to just notice the different subjective senses of time, how time changes over time. <laughs> Again, there's, uh, there's room for playfulness, right? Uh, and I thought I'd give a few other perspectives about time, uh, about the ordinary sense of time. Um, uh, one from uh, one perspective from philosophy, one from physics, and one from psychology that can be interesting and, and useful. Again, remembering that our ordinary sense of time is highly useful. But again, what we're looking to do is to not be so wrapped up in that ordinary way of uh, constructing time. And we'll see that as uh, something desirable more clearly when we see what's the sense of time for the Buddha. Okay? So some of you may have taken Philosophy 101, and you may remember... Uh, Immanuel Kant. I'm going to talk very briefly about Immanuel Kant, but he did have an interesting perspective on time. Uh, He said that uh, time and space and some other aspects of things, he also mentioned uh, uh, sort of what he called substance, the substantiality of things. He said that these were actually um, preconditions that we have these concepts in our mind almost as a given, and they're preconditions for any meaningful experience whatsoever. That we don't get a sense of time from uh, experience, but, we, but it's a given even before we can even possibly experience. He said time and space, substantiality of things, are features of our mind, what he called a priori, before experience. And he says they're almost like we we have a whole way that we construct experience that's not based itself on experience. That's a simple way to say it. We have a whole way of constructing experience that comes with human nature. And so that's one perspective. And, and time is like that, space is like that as well. Um, physics, uh, I'm going to say just a little bit about this, and I'm not an expert on this, so I'll be... And a lot of this is I gathered from reading some writing by uh, a physicist named Victor Mansfield, who's done some very interesting writing on the relationship between physics and Buddhism. And so you could you could look at some of his work online, or he has a, he has a few books. And so a few things about the view of physics about time. First of all, uh, you know uh, recent physics time is inseparable from space. And so physicists talk about time-space. Okay, I'm not going to try to explain that. Okay. Um, now, the, the most basic equations of physics are time-symmetrical. Uh, what that means 
is that if you would have a film of a ball bouncing, you could run it backwards and the uh, laws of physics would still apply. That, that the, the equations of physics apply without consideration of whether it's happening forward in time or backwards in time. Again, I won't try to explain that in detail. <laughs> okay. And yet, we also see that part of nature involves what is sometimes called the arrow of time. Time has a direction, right? And that uh, uh, food left out of the refrigerator will rot. And you can't reverse that. You, know, you can't reverse that. You can't just uh, run it backwards, right? And that we also obviously age and die, right? And so there is a process there is also an irreversible part of, uh, there are irreversible processes. There are some processes which are reversible in time and some which are not. And uh, physicists connect the irreversibility of time and the way that there is a movement of time, they connect it with the Big Bang. And again, we looked at that a little bit last time. Was there time before the Big Bang? Apparently not, right? And the, with the Big Bang, time is created, right? And time moves, and it seems to be the case that the nature of the Big Bang was such that uh, it was possible for the universe um, to expand because it, it seemed it, if the universe had not expanded quickly enough, nothing would have really developed. And all of creation would have just cohered in a few elements. But the, this is just, so this was to some extent accidental. The Big Bang expanded quickly enough and it led to entropy. And that is connected with uh, processes being irreversible. We know that the universe tends towards entropy. And this is because of the nature of the Big Bang. Again, I'm not going to explain this in detail. But essentially it's... Okay, are you following me? <laughs> essentially it's saying that um, without the way the Big Bang occurred, we wouldn't have impermanence. We wouldn't have aging and death without the Big Bang. It also means that our very process of aging and decay is intimately connected with the Big Bang and with the very origins of the universe. Okay? That's, that's meant to actually be helpful. <laughs> right. So the fact that we are all aging and dying wouldn't be there without the Big Bang and wouldn't be there without the whole process of the universe. Um, and on a more positive note, all of these irreversible processes also make life possible. That if there were no irreversible processes, we wouldn't be able to digest food and we wouldn't last that long. So, very, very positive. <laughs> okay. Um, and there are some further details, such as the fact that at least in relativity physics, time is dependent on the observer. That there's no objective time. They know this from 
explorations with the equations of physics that if someone is uh, traveling at uh, some fraction of the uh, speed of light, time will be perceived differently. And even though we don't generally uh, change our orientation to time in that physical sense, the fact that it's possible means that time is relative. It's relative to the observer. Right? So that's, all this is meaning to say that our ordinary sense of time is a kind of construction. Right? It's, not, it's not a feature of, of objective reality. Right? So that's meant to loosen up our sense of time a little bit. And the sense of psychology, which I mentioned some last time, perspectives from psychology, particularly uh, developmental psychology, is that as um, children, we don't have too much of a sense of time uh, in a fully developed sense until we're about eight years old. It develops partly along with the sense of self. So we have a little bit of sense of time early on, rudimentary sense of time, but the sense of uh, the sense of beginning, middle, and end doesn't seem to occur until four years old. And the sense of time of saying that occurred, you know, three years ago, we don't have until we're about eight years old, right? And so time gets constructed and children learn to construct uh, time and they also learn to construct it according to the culture they're in, which is going to be different, right? So... Time is basically a construction. The ordinary sense of time is a construction. We have particular patterns and habits that are more personal or more cultural, uh, but it's a construction. And there are two problems with the fact of time being a construction. Number one, we don't realize that it's a construction. In a sense, we construct time, but we forget that it's a construction. Maybe no one ever told us. Did your parents tell you, you are now being, you are now developing constructions of past, present, and future? But remember that as a construction. Maybe because no one told them, right? And no one told them, their, their parents, and going back continually. So uh, culturally, individually, we don't know it's a construction. We forget it's a construction. So we take it more seriously than perhaps we need to. And secondly, and we'll get to this in a moment, our constructions of time can obscure our deeper experiences, make them less accessible, and obscure our deeper nature of our being. So those are the two issues with our main issues with our constructions of time. So what does time look like for the Buddha or for awakened beings or for us when we're in our awakened moments? Um, and we can see this also from some of the teachings of the Buddha. You know, the Buddha in teaching mindfulness encourages us to try to be in the present moment. It says, do not live in the past, do not live in the future. Try to be in the present moment. And it's taken that this is really the source of freedom. And it's no coincidence that a key part of the Buddha's teaching is also to question the solidity of the sense of self. They're very connected, right? We could see that the sense of self is very connected with a sense of time. And again, most of our most precious experiences, we lose the sense of self, we lose the sense of time, right? And so all of the practices that we do 
to have a less fixed sense of time of self also help us to explore the nature of time. And so in many of our past sessions we've explored the Buddhist teach the Buddha's teaching called the teaching of anatta, translated usually as not self. You know? And I've the, the guidance that I've typically given on this is twofold. Look at where the sense of self is very thick and big. And also we'll typically find a sense of time there. And then secondly, open to experiences which are beyond the ordinary sense of self. And we do that in a few different ways. One of the ways uh, was to uh, explore what we have called flow experiences, which again are much more common than we realize, where we have a sense of just being in the flow of an experience, just enjoying being fully in the present moment. And we can do that washing the dishes, being with maybe a a film, being with the creative process, being with people we're close to. Uh, Athletes find this all the time. They call this being in the zone, right? That we can have these experiences of being in the flow. We'll typically find there's very little or no sense of time in those experiences. And so one of the ways we explore this, also very little sense of self. So one of the ways, and to go back to what I said earlier, they're often our most precious experiences or very precious experiences. So we can actually um, open up to those experiences more and realize that they're there more when we're experiencing them and also try to um, invite them more often. You know, that uh, we can we can do that. Um, and so there's those more accessible experiences of not having time and there also are deep experiences where we go beyond the sense of time. Maybe, maybe a, quite a range of experiences where there's not a sense of time. And uh, again, the invitation is to explore those. They, a lot of them will open up very naturally in the experience of just being mindful in a simple way. They can open up more. We can have a sense of time standing still, being in the present moment, And we can also, as these experiences deepen, have a sense also of there being no sense of space. That the the deepening of meditative experiences opens up to both timelessness and having no sense of space. This is something I found from uh, the Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart. He says, as long as the soul is anywhere, she is not in the greatest of God, which is nowhere. A Christian mystical tradition is saying the deepest spiritual experience is no sense of space. No sense of space, no sense of time. And so we can study, this is what one of the reasons that the Buddha counseled, study impermanence, study the nature of time, because in a way, Why do we have time? Why do we have a sense of time? It's so that we can trace and track change, right? That we, uh, we, you know, time is very, very useful for tracking change. Oh, this changed in three minutes. Oh, that changed in five minutes. Oh, here's what what we do to bring about this change. Very, very useful. So time is, is 
the reason for the construction of time is that it helps us to track things changing. And so one of the Buddha's counsel was to track how we, how things continually change. And he did that partly to see how we tend to assume that things are more permanent than they are, including ourselves. So he wanted to just be aware of the sense of change continually. And that's one of the doorways that as we open up more to change, we also start to go beyond conceptualizing experience. And the Buddha talked about and really pointed to uh, the sense of the timeless or the spaceless goes when we've gone beyond the sense of the concept of time, beyond the sense of the concept of uh, space, beyond the concept of self, right? So there's something in our experience where we learn to go beyond conceptualization, even the conceptualization of impermanence, even the conceptualization of being in a timeless place. Those experiences actually go both beyond the time and the timeless. And this is, um, this is from a Thai teacher named Achan Mahabua. I quoted him last time. Uh, he's talking about how we even go beyond impermanence. He says, although all phenomena without exception fall under the laws of impermanence, unsatisfactory and not self, the true nature of the mind doesn't fall under these laws. The natural power of the mind is that it knows and does not die. So he's saying this is where the Buddha talked about the deathless. There's a quality of our being for the Buddha, for Achan Mahabua, that is timeless. And being timeless, it doesn't die. You know, and this is talked about in different ways. It's talked about as nirvana or nibbana. It's talked about, the Buddha uses the phrase, the deathless. Achan Mahabua talks about the radiant mind. I'll go over, go continue with the quotation. The natural power of the mind itself is that it knows and does not die. This deathlessness is something that lies beyond disintegration. This non-disintegration is something which lies beyond impermanence and dukkha and uh, not self and the common laws of nature. But we are not aware of it because conventional realities become involved with the mind and surround it. So they're meditative practices that open us up to this deeper quality of mind. In the Tibetan tradition, accessing this quality of a kind of a timeless awareness is called accessing the nature of the mind itself. And so this is pointed to. And we can uh, begin to experience this, again, in those kind of flow experiences. We can experience it increasingly in our mindfulness practice. And then there are other practices. So maybe I'll, I'll move to that. Uh, how do we practice? And last time I mentioned several ways of practicing our mindfulness practice just uh, helps us to increasingly be in the present moment. And so following the guidance that uh, was given in the guided meditation this morning, just try to stay with our basic practice and stay more and more in the present moment. And this takes training. We have to continually learn to come back from being in the past, come back from being in the future. That's our training. Increasingly, 
we learn to be more in the present moment. And this can be very striking. You know, and we can say, oh, gosh, I know this from some experiences, but being able to stay here for a longer time is new. I know for myself, when I was first meditating, learning to be with a sunset without thinking about what a wonderful sunset it is. <laughs> right? Learning to be in the present moment with a sunset or maybe listening to someone or being with a friend. These are all quite accessible. And we have more access when we train to uh, not be so caught up in all our thinking patterns. This is so, the mindfulness practice is crucial. We learn how to see and let go of all these different patterns that keep us with the past, that keep us with the future. Again, it's not saying we get rid of the constructions, because what you could see from looking at the life of the Buddha is that one can be in a place of what we might call timeless awareness and still uh, use the constructions of time, past, present, and future. It's interesting, right? So being in the timeless can be connected with being in time. One can approach time from a timeless perspective. And that's one of the only ways to make sense of the Buddha was continually using constructions of time. But one can experience this as well. One can experience a timeless sense and then keep that perspective and then enter into negotiating with time. That's possible. Right? And so time and the timeless are ultimately not different. They're ultimately can be part of the same experience. Interesting, right? So, so ways to practice, cultivate mindfulness, stay with the present moment. Let the constructions of thinking become less and let them be more, uh, in a sense, under our control. You know, one of the things I sometimes say is compared to when I first started meditating, I think maybe 10 or 20% of the amount of time, but it's better quality. Right. So that's, that's, that's possible. So number one, just keep on cultivating our core practice. This will generally lead to less conceptualizing, being able more to be in the present moment, and without so many, much thinking. That's number one. Number two, we can be aware of those flow experiences and invite them and open up to them more that's a very ordinary way that we are actually more in the present moment, more in a timeless moment. And they're occurring all the time. I think they occur in our work, in our being with others, when we're, uh, they just occur very ordinarily. And so it's, the second limitation is to tune into those experiences. Third way of practicing is to notice impermanence as we did in our guided practice. To actually stay with impermanence, notice change is a very crucial practice. Part of what it does is it lessens our sense of the solidity of things, of ourselves, and we tend to see change occurring more, which in a sense starts to free us from a sense of time, from some of the, some of the constructions of time. We can also increasingly start to access uh, a sense of timeless awareness. Again, in some of the more advanced retreats that I lead, we devote several days to exploring this. 
you know, a retreat that I'll lead here, the end, of, starting the end of May, we explore this in some depth. How to access a type of awareness which is neither uh, using the constructions of time nor the constructions of space. We, one can begin to access that and have that be more stable in one's experience, much like that pointer from Achan Mahabua. And this is in many spiritual traditions, this is pointed to. And there are practices that can help to access that sense of a timeless, spaceless awareness, which then again, one can approach time from the perspective of timelessness, if that makes some sense. I'm not sure it does. Um, And yeah, and then, so there are actually a lot of wonderful ways to explore time. Maybe we'll maybe we'll explore them another time. How many would like to explore time further? Okay. Some of you are saying, "Not another time with time." So I'm going to end with a, a reading from the a poet from India. Uh, Rabadranath Tagore. This is a poem about uh, more about the timeless. Time is endless in thy hands, my Lord. There is none to count thy minutes. Days and nights pass and ages bloom and fade like flowers. Thou knowest how to wail, how to wait, I'm sorry. Thou knowest how to wait. Thy centuries follow each other, perfecting a small wildflower. We have no time to lose, and having no time, we must scramble for a chance. We are too poor to be late. And thus it is time, thus it is that time goes by, while I give to it every querulous person who claims it, and thine altar is empty of all offerings to the last. At the end of the day, I hasten in fear, lest thy gate be shut, but I find that yet there is time. So again, I think pointing to the mystery, pointing to some of the mystery of time. Let me just ask for a brief moment of reflection on how you might want to explore time further if you want to in the next week. So let me now invite any reflections or questions or comments. Uh, I think a a good place to focus is especially on how we practice, what patterns we notice in our own mind about time, and maybe even any reflections on what I'm calling the flow experiences or the the very ordinary everyday ways in which we experience uh, ourselves without time and often without a sense of self. I think those are very good places to focus.
So um, you said that construction, time is a construction, yeah. and, and the construction takes us out of the flow. Wouldn't any kind of construction take us out of the flow? Because you commented about, like, if you say, instead of being with a beautiful sunset, you say to yourself, oh, yeah. look at the yeah, beautiful yeah. sunset. So I'm just kind of thinking that then the flow is about letting go of any kind of construction. Yeah, I think that's an important point that uh, to a very large extent that sense of flow experience is going to have, uh, it's going to be beyond ordinary thinking as well. And, and so I think you're right that it goes beyond ordinary conceptualization that once we conceptualize the flow experience, we're usually out of it. You know, and again, I, uh, you can see this very easily in sports. You know, there's, again, there's a famous uh, moment. I think it's in, a, it's in a National Basketball Association finals when, like, Michael Jordan has just shot seven straight three-pointers, right? He's, he's totally in the zone. And then he goes by the scorer's table and goes like this. Maybe you've seen the film. More or less like saying, it's not me. And, with, and right at that moment, he is, in a sense, conceptualizing, noticing it. There's a sense of self, and he misses his next shot. Right? So when you, when you say, I'm in the zone, you're no longer in the zone. <laughs> There's a, something like that. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah. What, what a- and then over here next, yeah. What I find time and time again is um, people's concept of time is very different from what is actual. For example, doing recipes, they will say, this will take 45 minutes. But for me, it'll take twice or two and a half times that. And so I always fall into the trap of, okay, this is going to take 45 minutes and my day is all crammed up and then I'm irritable and um, it's just a lesson I never learn. And I also find that with with, uh, creative projects, this should be done in uh, half an hour. Yeah. And it's kind of like the recipe. So so, uh, uh, what I've been trying to do, often do, is just do one creative project a day because otherwise it just eats up my entire day and and it makes me frustrated and miserable so whoever's doing these times for recipes must have sous chefs because i don't have one (laughs) (laughs) right right so i think i think out of those reflections could come um, a suggestion that uh, all cookbooks should have near the beginning at least a section about uh, maybe maybe like a, a disclaimer. Um, these recipes and the timing of how to uh, use the recipes or the timing that's in the recipes uh, depends on a particular construction of time. If you have a different construction of time... <laughs> different way of constructing time, please adjust the recipes accordingly. So that, that might be in every cookbook or every, every way that uh, some suggestions are made about how to do something with, with time. Google Maps, yeah. You know, right, they, you know, the Google Maps say, 
Getting there will take 27 minutes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, please, yeah. Uh, so I have a, a, a very personal anecdote. It's the most yeah. joyful recollection. A little closer. Oh, okay. I have a personal anecdote. It's the most joyful m- recollection I yeah. have of a miscalculation of time. Maybe 20 years ago, I rented a kayak on Tamales Bay for two hours, and uh, I was having a wonderful time, a wonderful experience. <laughs> it was a gorgeous day, and I, I saw rays flowing underneath me, and everything was magnificent. And I suddenly remembered, oh, wait, the clock is ticking, and I thought, well, I've been out about 20 minutes. <laughs> and I looked at my watch, and an hour and a half had passed. Hmm. I still to this day can't believe that I miscalculated a perception of 20 minutes, but an actuality of an hour and a half. Yeah. And I owe it to the joyfulness that yeah. I was completely in the moment, in the as, moment as yeah. it's described. Yeah. I've never had such a miscalculation. I'm looking for another. <laughs> yeah, how many can relate to that? Yeah, like, oh, that's great. Yeah, a wonderful story. Thank you. Uh, really, uh, yeah, it really, really points to that the you know the the mind that uses time gets sometimes disoriented with the timeless. Yeah. When you asked us last week to focus on our experiences when we're in the past and when we're in the future, it started me thinking about if if it's most valuable to be in the present moment, why the heck do I spend so much time in the past and so much time in the future? And talked to my husband about it, and the conclusion we came to is that time spent in the past can be valuable if it's part of a learning experience. If you're looking at something that you may have done in the past that maybe didn't go the way you want it to go, maybe you can think about it and come up with a better way to do it Mm -hmm. next time. Mm -hmm. But trying to spending time in the past trying to change the past or feeling guilty about the past is not necessarily productive. So it's kind of like there's a middle way of being in the past that can be helpful. Similarly for the future, there is value, and I'm like you, I'm a planner. I spend a great deal of time thinking about what's coming up. It's like, I, it's like I've got a scanner that goes around. I said, what, what is something that's coming up in the future that I might be able to make yeah. better? Um, but the time in the future is not productive if I spend it worrying about what might happen in the yeah. future. So the so bottom line for me is if, if I am, it's not by choice that I spend time in the past. I, am, I end up there. Same thing with the future. Um, because the thinking mind does what the thinking mind does. It comes up from the subconscious and takes you places where it wants to take you. Um, but I have a choice about what I do when I'm there. Yeah. Great. Thank you for uh, bringing that up in that way. And I think a key here is to remember, really, I mean, maybe first to explore 
what is the experience of the past? What is the experience of the, of the future? Seems to be that is being in the present moment and having memories of the past. That we're, and same thing with the future. And so one of the keys to distinguishing between what's helpful about relating to the past and what's not helpful, same thing with the future, is to ground the experience more in the present moment. In other words, if I have uh, had a difficult experience, let's say, you know, a week ago I had a difficult experience with a colleague or a friend, and I'm just uh, going over a memory with my own narrative and repeating it over and over again, that may not be so useful. That may be more habitual. Can I go over what's happened in the past and actually tune into it as a present moment experience? In other words, I'm going over these thoughts and I tune into my body and my emotions. Oh, that was painful. Oh, I have anger, right? Can I relate to what's there in the present moment that's generating the need to go to the past. Same thing we could do with the future. There's some, you know, some, especially if it's uh, done over and over again, if I'm doing it in some compulsive way, right? A certain amount of planning for the future is just innocent and ordinary. But if I'm going to the future a lot, there could be something to look at that's more in the present moment. I mentioned last time how I noticed, it took, I think it was not till I had been meditating for 10 years, but I noticed you know, when the mind got quiet enough that all my planning, there was a certain level of anxiety about the future that was beneath my, you know, my perpetual planning. Of course, I'm a pretty good planner. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, men- I mentioned, I think last time, that my sister actually has a, a master's degree in planning right, and makes her living as a planner, as a health planner with Kaiser. So it's quite useful. Um, but that I know I could notice when I looked carefully at the present moment experience of doing a lot of planning. And I was, this was in a meditation retreat where I clearly didn't need to do all that planning. You know? And I would notice that there actually was something that when our mind got quiet enough, I could notice there was some kind of fear beneath the way I was relating to the future. Right? And to notice that was helpful. So that would be a key to, uh, especially if there seems to be a lot of habitual energy, can I experience what, uh, the, the, can I um, investigate these experiences of the past in the present moment and see what's there? And again, the way, ways that can be helpful to do that is to go through the body and the emotions especially. The thinking will generally keep us in loops, but the going into the body and the emotions is a, is a, can be a helpful way to access. And sometimes the mind just also needs to be quiet enough to, for that to open up. But that, you know, thank you for that. Okay, anything else? We're just at, at around ending time. So I wish we were doing another session next week. We could, I could continue this. So, um, but how many of you, even the fact that I'm not doing it uh, next week, uh, how many of you would like to explore time in the next week? And just to, uh, okay, so and again, see, uh, just in your, take a moment or two,
and ask yourself, how might I explore time? And I gave, again, several practices. One is just being in the mind, with the mindfulness practice in the present moment, opening to the present moment as much as we can. A second practice is to notice that sense of what we can call flow when you enter into a sense of being outside of ordinary time, just in very, but in very ordinary ways, very ordinary experiences. A third is looking at impermanence. We can do it with one sense as we did with sound or with body sensations, or you can uh, just notice change. You could notice it for a few minutes at a time with whatever is occurring. You can also relate to impermanence by just reflecting. Maybe take two or three minutes and reflect on how things change in ordinary, with ordinary reflection. So see what calls you. Take a, let's take a minute or two now. How might I like to explore my experience of time in the next week? So may our um, explorations of time be beneficial for others. May we have a good time exploring time. And may the fruits of our exploration be there for us, be there for those in our own circles, and be there ultimately for all beings remembering that we are part of all beings. So thank you, and uh, at least for this Wednesday morning, uh, see you most likely next year. We can also remember that the recordings of our Wednesday morning sessions are on the website Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.org. And so last time will be on Dharma Seed and today's as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.